Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Sri Nalamachu. I am a PM&R physician in uh, Kansas City area. I'll be talking to you about the peripheral stuff, peripheral injections. You know, you, uh, you know, you always hear this interventional pain physician versus non-interventional pain physician, and I always joke, uh, what do you mean? You know, if I, what I'm doing is not considered an intervention just because I'm not using a big needle. Uh, <laughs> But you know, but you know, I'm a physical medicine rehab trained guy. I do a lot of uh, uh, peripheral joint injections, like knee, elbow, shoulder, carpal tunnel, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, um, welcome to all of you to Vegas and also to the Pain Week. Um, I happen to be the co-chair for the scientific session of this meeting, as well as the poster section. You know, we started this meeting about 10 years ago and have grown from 400 people to more than 2,000. Hopefully you're all enjoying and, and learning some stuff. Uh, you know, without further ado, uh, let me just uh, go on. So disclosure, uh, this is kind of misleading. I, uh, I don't want people to, to uh, go away thinking that I don't have any. I don't have any, anything to disclose about the stuff that I'm talking in this particular um, talk. Um, I always say I'm actually uh, so biased that I'm unbiased because I do a lot of clinical research and uh, clinical trials, so um, I'm a consultant for almost every company that you see here. So that's my disclosure, but I won't be talking about any of that stuff in this particular talk, so that's the reason I mentioned nothing to disclose. As you all know, this is a CME program. Uh, it's not a, a promotional thing. So, you know, we want to talk about the most common pain conditions in the knee, elbow, myofascial pain, and, and you know, carpal tunnel, uh, medial epicondylitis, lateral epicondylitis, that kind of a thing. Uh, we'll look at the etiology and, and pathology, but also look at the economic impact. I don't know if some of you have attended uh, a session this morning, talk about you know, health economics outcome, outcomes. Uh, the speaker this morning was saying, uh, if you look at the numbers in 1966, we spent about half a billion dollars as a nation uh, on health care, and 1996, that doubled to 1 trillion. 2006, that doubled to 2 trillion. 2016, that, doub that doubled again to 4 trillion. So it's, you know, it's very important that everything we do now, you know, we talk about the economic impact on the society uh, and the healthcare system in general. So uh, you know, talk about the various diagnostic tests. You know, when you see a patient with uh, wrist pain, you know, is it uh, Carpal tunnel, is it the uh, tendonitis uh, that's affecting the ligaments and the tendons, or is it uh, you know, just the carpal metacarpal joint? So uh, things like that, you know, what do we need to do? And then talk about various office-based procedures that can help the patient, but also um, improve the function in them, not just the pain relief. Um, but the other thing that we always you know, want to talk about is how is it affecting you uh, as a practitioner, um, you know, does it help you economically speaking? Uh, so things like that we need to know because we are, you know, like I said, you know, we are all uh, practicing very um, uh, cost-based medicine anymore. Um, so what are the indications that you, we do the injections for? If you think about the acute conditions, you have the acute painful joint or acute bursa, you know, you see a lot of bursitis, uh, tendonitis, sometimes uh, acute. You know, we see both acute and chronic with tendonitis as well as the, uh, the joint things. Our acute flare of a osteoarthritis, uh, right? So we, we um, you know, I'm sure we all see these patients who talk about, uh, you, you know, is osteoarthritis genetic? You know, my mom has it, my older sister has it. You know, I tell patients it's, it's not genetic. It's not even a disease, right? It's a degenerative condition. Everybody has osteoarthritis. The question is, you know, how painful it is, and is it interfering with your function? What do you need to do? But where we are really concerned is um, acute flares of chronic osteoarthritis. You know, we see that often uh, patients are coming, you know, after twisting their knee or ankle. You know, they have swelling. They are very painful. Uh, or, you know, I had a, uh, a patient who actually is a friend of mine who is an oncologist, and uh, he came to San Francisco for some interview, and uh, he said, like, you know, I, I had to walk around a lot, and comes in 
with a lot of pain in his knee and you know so next thing you know this guy has a flare of some condition that he already has so things like that again you know the the whole idea is we want to limit the joint damage and um, whether it's an infectious process or you know purely inflammatory process uh, obviously we want to give them relief from the pain and improve their function so if they have any accumulation of the fluid we want to draw the fluid out before we inject so these are the things uh, you know that we need to keep in mind so the most common joints that that we inject in the offices the obvious one is the knee right if you look at the the numbers um, the most common surgery that's done in the United States is actually knee replacement so all these patients are coming to you before they get to the surgeon so the most common joint that I inject in my practice or most of you guys see is probably going to be the osteoarthritis of the knee or knee conditions right so that's that's the first one then you think think about the next one again is very easy right if you go in that order hip um, you know of course uh, hip injections are not that easy to do unless you actually have the fluoroscopy you know that's one thing very close to a lot of neurovascular structures you got to keep that in mind either ultrasound I I would recommend you really want to have fluoroscopy if you have to do the hip itself but there are peripheral stuff that you can do in the hip let's say you have a patient a lot of patients come to the office with lateral hip pain which is really trochanteric bursitis right so that's something that you can easily do in the office so something to think about um, shoulder is another one you know for both joint as well as the rotator cuff stuff so you know when patients come with the shoulder pain uh, you know based on your exam you know is it purely inflammatory in nature or you know as long as they have good range of motion if you are suspicious you might want to get an MRI to see you know what's happening with their with their cuff otherwise uh, you know most of the uh, the mild uh, rotator cuff problems the first line treatment is injection so you know that's what you can't think about the um, the other joint that most of us don't think about uh, you know what's the most uh, third most common joint that's replaced in the United States after the, after the knee and hip elbow no actually I'm giving you a clue right there it's thumb <laughs> so carpal metacarpal joint of thumb is the third most common commonly replaced uh, joint um, you know in the body and you know think about it right because we use the the, the, the thumb so much for everything um, you know in fact um, there was an article um, I think it was Time magazine or somewhere very recently I, I was reading um, you know with all the technology with everybody on their iPhones and, and things like that um, the problems with the with the thumb are on the rise and especially you know if you're you know mid 50s and you're on the computer a lot or you're on the uh, iPhone or whatever a lot uh, you know then I see a lot of CMC of thumb um, arthritis patients these days um, one thing to remember I mean I'll be going about going through the injections each one of them but if you are thinking about thumb you never want to go from the the Palmar side you know because this is really the no man's land there are a lot of uh, uh, you know veins and nerves um, unless you are very comfortable and using ultrasound but still I think you are better off going from the dorsal side to inject that so just just keep in mind I don't want to forget that um, and then elbow of course you have the uh, olecranon bursitis but on the top of that uh, the most common things that we see in the office are lateral epicondylitis which is the tennis elbow and the medial epicondylitis you know which is the golf elbow and then ankle uh, is another one that we see you know very often in the offices um, because people sprain their ankles whether it's on the golf course whether it's just you know doing some sports activities I tell you injections with ankle are difficult because ankle joint is a combination of multiple joints you, you really have to uh, you know hit um, same thing again there's a lot of you know especially the nerves there you know superficial peroneal nerve deep peroneal nerve and, and the branches so if you're not comfortable just send them to a foot and ankle surgeon or a podiatrist but you know if you're comfortable with the anatomy and if you have ultrasound that's a joint that you could definitely inject um, and the failure with the ankle surgery is very high I have um, 
noticed over the last 17 years that I've been practicing, I tell you probably 70 to 80% of the patients who had ankle surgery are failures. So I always tell them, you know, look, I have no problem injecting you because the chances of you having a failed surgery with ankle are much higher. So I'd rather try this before I send you to them. So just keep that in mind. And it's, 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 it's only because it's a complex anatomy. It's not that these surgeons are bad. You know, shoulder is difficult too because again, shoulder is not a single joint, right? I mean, it's, uh, you got the glenohumeral joint, you have the acromioclavicular joint, you have all these muscles, it's a deep joint. You know, it's not as easy as a knee joint. So, um, so these joints, I think if, if the patient's coming with pain, uh, if you're comfortable, you know, inject them, patients will be happy. So the other common injections that we do in the um, musk, I, you know, I, like again, I think it's not really the typical interventional pain where they're doing epidurals, you know, radiofrequency, rhizotomies, but these are peripheral stuff. You can do trigger point injections in the office. A lot of bursitis, right, like trochanteric bursitis, subacromial bursitis, and then the uh, anserine bursitis in the knee. And you talk about uh, tendonitis in the, in the wrist. If you think about decor veins, it's pretty common because uh, people who are on the uh, devices a lot, because this is, the, this is where these tendons are. I'll show you another picture. But uh, they have a lot of pain, swelling, and they respond very well to the injections. Uh, bicipital tendonitis is not as common, but lateral and medial epicondylitis are very common. You know, you think about it's not just the, just the, ten, the, the tennis or uh, golf. I mean, weightlifting, uh, uh, people who have certain professions where, you know, they are doing rip, repeat movements of the same thing. You know, you see the, uh, the lateral and medial epicondylitis. Plantar fasciitis is another thing um, that responds well to the injections. But just keep in mind that, you know, you have, it's very painful, you know, um, you know, if you're not good at it, don't do it, send it to someone. Um, and then a uh, couple of things in terms of the, uh, the nerve entrapment syndromes that are very common. Carpal tunnel syndrome is extremely common, as you all probably see. And then the cubital tunnel syndrome in the elbow, uh, sometimes, you know, it's purely nerve. Sometimes it's actually secondary to the uh, medial epicondylitis that patients have cubital tunnel syndrome because there's inflammation that's pinching onto their nerve, and then they present with um, uh, the, you know, the cubital tunnel syndrome. Uh, you know, if it is mild, you can just do the injection of the medial epicondylitis and can get the pain relief. Um, or if it is moderate to severe, then they may need an ulnar nerve transposition. Uh, then you need to send them to a surgeon. So contraindications, there's, you know, this is a huge list, list of contraindications that I, you know, I got it from you know, one of the uh, published articles. But the main thing I'm always worried about, you know, that, that you have to keep in mind if there's an overlying cellulitis or uh, infection, never inject a joint that is actually artificial. I have seen people injecting artificial knee, and then they come back to, to me after, like, so I said, you have this incision, you have had a knee replacement. Uh, oh, but the other doctor injected last time. Never, ever do that, because you're essentially setting up for a, a huge lawsuit if there's an infection, right? I mean, uh, plus there's no joint. What are you treating? I mean, honestly, that's like, that's, um, you know, is a crime in my view. So, you know, there's a lot of other things, but infection, local infection, and, and an artificial joint are really the key ones that you shouldn't be injecting. And, you know, of course, if you've injected a couple of times, if it's not responding, then there's no reason to inject again uh, because how much steroid do you want to do? And you know, every time you put a needle, there is a risk of infection. Uh, you know, it's funny. We, um, we, we don't see as many people coming with the infection. Uh, but um, about a month ago, a, f a friend of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon, his dad um, was having a, a serious knee problem. And he practices in Portland, Oregon, and this guy, his dad happens to be my neighbor. So he told the guy, you know, well, why don't you go to an orthopedic surgeon uh, and get injected? Don't go to the rehab guy. So guess what? The orthopedic guy injected him, and he had a serious infection. Uh, I'm not happy for him, but, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a PM&R guy or whether it's uh, an orthopod. You know, it's the care that you take, and it's the number of procedures that you've done. 
that's what gives you the expertise, not just, because I'm not operating, right? I'm a PM&R guy, I wanna, I'm only doing injections. Um, you know, if I'm operating, then it's a different story. That's not what I'm qualified to do. Um, but so, you know, infections do happen in spite of all the stuff that, you know, that, that we do and take all the precautions. Um, and like I said, I saw one just in the last few weeks. So, uh, um, so don't discount patients. So what I tell patients is that, uh, you know, when I inject them, look, it's extremely rare, but if it looks angry, if it's swollen, Anything that is outside of normal, give me a call. So call Keflex, you know, for a week, and you know, if you can see them immediately, see them. Otherwise, you know, somebody can see them or see them in a week. Um, so you know, it's pretty easy to take care of it. So, like I said, that, those are the absolute contraindications that I'm worried about. Rest of it, no big deal. So, what do we need to have to do any of these injections? Obviously you know, materials and the equipment. There's not much of an equipment you need unless you're talking about doing some deep injections like hip, where you either want to do it under uh, fluoroscopy or, you know, maybe ultrasound guidance for things like carpal tunnel. Uh, you know, carpal tunnel is another one which is a little bit, uh, little bit deeper and, you know, very little space that you have to work with. So unless you are very comfortable with the anatomy, you have done enough you know, don't do it, send them to someone else who has done it before. Uh, but there's stuff that's very easy, right? Like the trochanteric bursitis, you could not go wrong. Knee, I mean, if you cannot do knee injection without ultrasound, you shouldn't even be practicing medicine, in my view. Because, I mean, like, how could you miss knee joint? I mean, you know, we, when the ultrasound came, everybody was using ultrasound for knee injection. I'm like, for what? Really, you know, like, you, you could inject from the medial side, lateral side, you still will not go wrong. I've done probably... 10,000 knee injections over the last 17 years, I tell you the response is close to 100%. Now, you know, some people do better than the others depending on, but it's not the technique, it is depending on the underlying disease, right? You talk about somebody who's got mild inflammation, moderate disease, if it's pure, uh, you know, severe degenerative joint disease, bone on bone, you can't do much because it's basically, you know, whatever the steroid and the lidocaine that you put in is not going to change the underlying pathology. You just take away some of the inflammation, uh, you know, from the osteophytes and things like that. So, um, so not much equipment is needed. Uh, pharmacologic agents, uh, really, you know, you could limit yourself to two pharmacologic agents for peripheral injections. Uh, some form of cortisone, whether it's depomedrol or Kenalog, I, I personally use Depomedrol because I've seen Kenalog getting um, uh, aggregated when you use it with lidocaine. In fact, uh, there, was a, there was a picture that I saw in the surgical uh, textbook, so I stopped using it. So they, and I, I'm not blaming Kenalog, but the picture said they used Kenalog. So, um, you know, I, I got worried. So this guy, um, this is, you know, some 15, 20 years ago case report where they, they used Kenalog with an anesthetic and a surgeon went to operate after six weeks and saw the, the precipitation of Kenalog still sitting there. So I use Depomedrol exclusively in my office and I also use the higher concentration, 80 milligrams per cc, only because, you know, I don't want to have multiple preparations, right? I'm using the same thing for carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel, CMC of the thumb, where the volume is a huge limitation. If you think about carpal tunnel, it's like, can only take about half a cc to one cc, and if it's already inflamed, you don't have a lot of space, a lot of space, right? So you really have to think about that. So, you know, something like that, if you have a concentrated uh, depot, then makes it much easy for you. And, you know, so I use uh, either bupivacaine or lidocaine. Uh, you know, you have bupivacaine comes in 0.25% and 0.5%. Lidocaine comes in 0.5% and 0.1%. You know, so about half a cc to one cc, depending on how big of a joint you're injecting, is, is plenty. And then mix that with the um, Depomedrol. So the volume limitations, in my view, that I do in my practice, for carpal tunnel and cubital tunnel and the CMC of the thumb, I'm only using total of one cc. So, you know, basically if you're using 40 milligrams of depot, that's half a cc, and then combine it with the half a cc of the, the local anesthetic, so you won't have, um, you know, 
volume limitations. Uh, but you know, remember when you are injecting things like carpal tunnel, it can be extremely painful. So the faster you get out, the, pa the patient is more happy, obviously. So you know, patient satisfaction is always important uh, because next time they don't want to have injections otherwise, right? So site preparation, uh, the way I do it is I you know, clean it with betadine and then do the um, anesthetic spray. So that way, you know, they got the uh, local anesthetic that's extremely effective for a minute or two, right? And then I wipe it off with alcohol, uh, and then I put the needle. I actually always mix two things in the same needle. I don't believe, personally, pre-anesthetizing and putting the depomedrol afterwards, because it takes, the, the whole thing takes less than a minute. So there is this anxiety factor, the longer you do it, you know, the, you know, you change the needle, each time there is a higher risk of infection if you have to change the needle two times. And then there's the technical problem, right? If you have to do it under ultrasound, you know, you, you locally anesthetize and take this uh, syringe out, you're putting a new needle, then you're moving. So it's just, the whole idea, at least in, in my view, what I do in my practice is, the faster that I can do it and get out, the, the faster, uh, you know, the response is, and the patients are very happy. And I, like I said, I've done thousands of these office-based procedures over the years, and, you know, it's, it's amazing. These patients come and tell me, you know, I've had this injection before somewhere, and, you know, it hurt me so much. How come, you know, you're, you're doing it so fast? I think, you know, developing an efficient way of doing things, uh, you know, if you can do knee injection and carpal tunnel in less than a minute, your patient's going to be very happy. And believe me, you can do it under a minute if you just develop a, you know, a good system where there's no inefficiency needed. And then the post, do you have a question? No. Okay. Post-injection care, uh, I tell them to put ice on uh, at, at, at night for a day. And then most of the times I, uh, I prepare the patients. You know, most of the times patients get the response by the end of the day. Sometimes it may take uh, a day. So the, the way uh, you, you, know, you want to prepare them is, look, there is the local anesthetic that's going to help you with the pain immediately, but the, the depot doesn't kick in until tomorrow. So, so you may have a window where you know, you're doing great, and then you may have a window of pain before your depot kicks in, and then you have the long-term relief. And sometimes it's, it's more than 24 hours, uh, but if you prepare them well, then, then you don't get callbacks, right? I mean, uh, that, that's the key, you know. What, what do you really expect in a practice is, you know, your patient shouldn't be calling you back again and again, uh, so you can actually, uh, you know. So supplies, like I said, very simple things, alcohol wipes, um, betadine, gloves. Now, there are two sets of um, uh, in, in needles that you do need because it's hard to... Um, you know, extract the medicine out of the, the vials if you use a smaller needle like uh, 25 or 27. So I use the 20 or 18, whatever is closer to me, to, to uh, get the depot and the lidocaine out. And then I change the needle to a 25 to do the procedure itself. Uh, for smaller, very peripheral areas like the carpal tunnel and cubital tunnel, you are probably fine with the 25 the 5 eighths, which is, you know, close to half an inch needle. But if you have to go a little bit deeper, 25, one and a half inch needle is what you really want to do. Um, and of course, uh, you know, if you are someone who's doing SI joints or, uh, you know, have to go deeper, then you probably want to use a 25, one and a half. Uh, sometimes if you have to use, um, if you want to do myofascial pain injections like trigger points in the uh, deep layers of trapezius, you want to do a 21. 25 one and a half inches, but uh, you know you really don't want to go all the way one and a half inches because you'll be hearing some noises coming out of the lung. Uh, so that's not very good. Uh, you know, definitely always want to make sure a you know in a joint or any space you know, uh, draw to make sure there's no blood. And you know, if you're doing upper back and the neck, make sure you're not in the lung. Um, so, you know, it's easy, you know, if you are, just take it out. And that's the advantage of using a 25-gauge needle. So if you're in the lung, just take it out. You really don't need to send the patient to the ER. You know, it'll just close by itself, right? It's such a small needle. Uh, small pneumo, no big deal. Um, 
the syringe is really like, you know, one to cc depending on what you're injecting, right? I mean, if you're injecting a big joint, um, not, not necessarily for the, um, the corticosteroid injections, but if you are, if you are doing this, you know, hyaluronic acid injections into the knee, those are bigger syringes, you know, if, if you're using the single injection, that's 6 cc. Uh, the other times that you need a bigger syringe is if you are injecting a joint that has an effusion because you want to dry it first, right? So you want to put a, uh, a 10 inch, I mean, a 10 cc syringe, draw the fluid out until, you know, you're very sure, and then, uh, you know, you can change the needle uh, if you want to, but there's really no need to change the needle anymore because the needle is already in there, patient is tolerating, just uh, put the other syringe which got the you know, Depometrol and, and inject. Um, and like I said, the other things that you need would be the, the local anesthetic, the corticosteroid uh, preparation, and I told you what's my choice, but you don't have to use that. I don't have any uh, um, conflict of interest with any of those companies. I'm just giving you my bias. And the adhesive bandage dressing, uh, you know, quite a few times I actually don't even put a bandaid because it's such a small needle. Patients are like, oh, I'm doing great. You just wipe them off and, and you can send home. But, you know, occasionally if they are bleeding because they are on anticoagulants or they are on anti-inflammatories, you know, believe it or not, quite a few patients actually bleed a little more than the usual because they are taking insights. So that's, that's the patient that may need our aspirin, you know, right? Uh, that's the patient that may need uh, a bandage. So technique, um, so there are certainly things that you want to remember. Do not inject directly into tendon or ligament because there are studies showing, you know, the, you can weaken the ligaments, you can weaken the tendons by injecting directly into it. And, you know, they can be extremely painful. And, of course, you're not really doing any justice to them. So that's the other thing. Um, if you are in, uh, encountering any kind of resistance, obviously, you know, that's the space that you shouldn't be injecting because you um, are not going to be helping the patient, right? So when you do the knee, for example, whether it's medial or lateral, you want to make sure that, you know, you just go smooth. And, and then as, you, as soon as you know that it's an empty space, you're in a joint space, so that's easy. But if you're, if you're resisting, if you're encountering any resistance, that means you know, you're probably in the, you know, hurting, hurt the patient because you are directly on the bone, or if it's tendon or ligament, it's, it's not useful. So those, those are things. So, like I said, aspirate to make sure, um, you know, damage um, the nerve and, um, you know, make sure that you're not in any vascular structure. So preparation, I think I kind of mentioned it to you in the beginning. Injection side, obviously, you want to uh, clearly identify. You know, some people do the pen marks, but once you, once you do that and wipe it off with the betadine, your pen mark is gone. So what I do is I actually use my pen, and the blunt end of the pen, I, may, I make a mark with that because, in fact, if you clean with the betadine, that actually gets much better. So it's very easy. You, you know, um, so th these are the tricks that you learn as you do more and makes you much more efficient. Uh, immediate uh, injection site clean with the alcohol swab. Uh, and, but like I said, I think I do with the betadine first, and then I spray, and then I clean with the alcohol. As the, um, and then, uh, of course, use of the local anesthetic is, is really uh, uh, you know, the key. And so once, once you finish the injection, you want to wipe it off again and uh, uh, you know, put some pressure on if there's bleeding, and then put some kind of you know, adhesive dressing or a Band-Aid before you send the patients out. So let's look at the individual joint. Um, injection of the knee, like I said, is the most common you're, you know, doing for the osteoarthritis or bursitis. You know, sometimes you see patients coming with a lot of swelling, but it's in the back of the, back of the knee. You know, that's the uh, Baker cyst, right, you know, which is really a popliteal cyst that's inflamed. Um, you know, I, um, I saw a patient who come a couple of weeks ago, it was a lot of pain, and I was convinced that it was, you know, a popliteal cyst, but there was no swelling because it actually got burst already. Um, so, you know, I sent him in for an MRI, and uh, it showed that it was actually a, a ruptured popliteal cyst. So something uh, to keep in mind, uh, you know, like I said, 
either you're doing an intraarticular space injection, which is the most common injection that we do in the musculoskeletal practices, and probably in the primary case care offices as well, and then the answer and bursa. So uh, we talked about this, um, whether it's using the um, Depometrol, uh, but you know, you've all heard of the hyaluronic acid uh, injections, you know, uh, different brand names, uh, you know, I don't need to tell you guys uh, all of those, you know, there's a bunch of them in the market, one injection, three injection, five injections. Uh, there is actually some controversy regarding those. American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has taken a position, I think a year or two ago, saying they are no more effective uh, than, than placebo, I, I could be wrong exact on the exact statement, but since then quite a few of the insurance companies stopped paying for it. So we don't use them as much as we used to do them before. Um, so, you know, what, what, um, what we do, what we're trying to achieve with the corticosteroid injection obviously is uh, mostly the local inflammatory re response, but, you know, you're increasing the viscosity of the synovial fluid if there's any left, if it is you know, mild to moderate uh, degenerative disease. And uh, uh, there's some evidence that it may alter the production of hyaluronic acid uh, itself. Um, but, you know, most of the times this is very short-term benefit. You know, patients uh, respond, uh, response rate is very high, you know, if the patient selection is good unless you are, you know, injecting the severe DJD where they won't get much. But uh, I have seen patients doing well for a week, a month, or six months. I had one patient that lasted almost two years. I guess he's had a mild, uh, really mild DJD. Um, so again, I think, you know, this is what you want to tell your patients. You know, it depends on how bad your inflammation is and, you know, what's happening with your joint. Um, uh, don't need to go any more, you know, details. I've talked about all of those agents that we use in the knee. Uh, one thing that I want to mention that has been extremely popular is the platelet-rich plasma. Of course, the evidence is minimal. Uh, we uh, completed a clinical trial for uh, um, amniotic, amniotic, amniotic fluid, which is extracted from, um, basically, this is a company that procures amniotic fluid from uh, elective cesarean sections, and they do the filtration and all. And we, I think we injected three cc of amniotic fluid into each knee, and in fact, just before coming here, one of the people that I injected in the clinical trial was my, my research uh, nurse, and uh, it's been almost a year and two months. This is someone that I see every day because she works in my office. I've done uh, hyaluronic acid injections on her, I've done steroid injections on her, and she said nothing worked like this. You know, it's almost been 14 or 15 months. Um, so again, you know, there's multiple companies making this amniotic fluid, so something to keep in mind if any of you guys are into, uh, you know, this, I wouldn't call it alternative care, but this is called regenerative medicine. You know, that's the buzz these days. Uh, there are clinics opening up talking about regenerative. So there's multiple cell lines, right? The amniotic fluid is only one of the cell lines. So a lot of companies are working on different cell lines uh, um, in the musculoskeletal space for the joint injections. And knee, obviously, being one of the most common ones, there's lot of work going on. Same thing with the platelet rich plasma. Like I said, the evidence is, is limited. Uh, the process is a little more laborious. Obviously, you don't see too many people doing that at this point. And, and same thing with the amniotic fluid. So for the knee itself, the approach, obviously, you know, this is a patient that, uh, that you can see uh, is, is um, being injected from the, the medial side. And, and uh, you know, essentially, you want to grab the patella and, and and move it and bend the patient's knee maybe 30 degrees. You, um, this is, you know, um, um, much easier if you bend about 30 to 45 degrees and find the right space. And each patient is a little different depending on the underlying uh, degenerative process. Um, sometimes I get very easily from the medial side. Sometimes I get uh, very easily from the lateral side. And, you know, when I push them hard, I tell them this is actually the worst part of the entire procedure, my pushing your knee joint to find the space. And then once you anesthetize, the needle part becomes much easier, 99% of the time. So, you know, you, you can mark it. Like I said, I'm, um, it, it all depends on the comfort level, um, pretty easy. Uh, now this is a difficult patient, obviously. I, um, 
Um, she had some, some issues, we had difficulty, but I was just showing we went from the lateral side in this patient because we could not find uh, from the medial side. Uh, one of the other things I was mentioning in the beginning is the, the tendonitis in the wrist. Uh, this is uh, the decurrence tendonitis essentially is on the thumb side of the wrist and uh, it's inflammation of the two tendons. Um, basically the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis, if you're interested in anatomy, go through a small um, uh, fascia here and um, they become one tendon and go, go under that and that's where they get inflamed, the patients get inflamed depending on their repetitive motion. So you want to uh, you want to find that, and you know, uh, we do what's called Finkelstein's test. So you ask the patient to bend the thumb inside, and if you try to do this, they are going to scream. And that's basically indicative of the decurvance. Uh, it responds very well, but you want to be careful because very close to the radial sensory nerve, and uh, you know, if you're a bad injector, you could in inject the radial motor nerve, then they'll have a wrist drop, so which, you know, is not going to be pretty for anyone, but um, if you ask the patient if there are any paresthesias, that means you're too close to the radial sensory nerve, which means you may be closer to the radial motor nerve as well. So just uh, reposition the, you know, it may take an extra 15, 20 seconds, but the re reposition the needle, maybe take it back a little bit and inject them. Uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to injure the nerves unless you are a really bad injector and know, don't know the anatomy. So typical causes include lifting young children into car seats, heavy grocery bags. You know, I see a lot of um, uh, people that I see decurrence are the baggers in the grocery store because you know, they're doing the same repetitive motion all the time. Uh, so that's, um, that's one. And then it's extremely painful. These people have a lot of pain. And like I said, on the exam, the tenderness, they will, they will really shout when you try to do the Finkelsteins. Uh, occasionally they have swelling and redness, but not all the time. But when, when people come and tell you that I have pain in the thumb, there's only two things. Right? One is the carpal metacarpal joint of the thumb, other is the decurvance tendonitis. If you do the, uh, if you do the Finkelstein's test, you can differentiate and then the injection becomes easy. If it's carpal metacarpal joint of the thumb, it's right into the joint itself. If it's the tenosynovitis, then you basically are going maybe one or two inches proximal, and you're doing a 30 degrees, you know, uh, pointing the needle proximally, pretty easy. I said, you know, it's, it's easy uh, based on the physical exam, really. You don't need to do anything else. The Finkelstein's test is what you need to do. Treatment options, uh, you know, it's easy enough. Uh, all of these things pretty much have the same protocol, right? Uh, Rice. You have the rest, ice, compression, elevation, and injection. Uh, I think God made it easy because you all know the the uh, you know the the joke about the orthopedic surgeons. Any orthopedic surgeons here? No, good. So uh, I'm sorry. What's the what's the best example for a double blind study? You you know the joke. Okay. So the joke is that two orthopods looking at an EKG is the best example for a double-blind study. <laughs> and, the, you know, the reason I'm saying is, you know, it's, it's all the same protocol, no matter which joint you're injecting, which tendon, you know, you're injecting. Very easy, right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a plumber's job or like a carpenter job, I guess, you know. But, um, uh, in fact, I was watching a, a, a video that talks about anesthetist versus orthopedist. You know, this was a British... Um, uh, you know, if you guys have time, go on to YouTube and watch a five-minute video. It says anesthetist versus orthopedist. It's, it's so funny. And, and uh, my neighbor actually happens to be an orthopedic surgeon, one of the neighbors, and his wife is an anesthetist. So I sent the, the video to them to watch. And the, the guy was like, hey, you know, now you got me into trouble. But anyway, so injections are very effective. And uh, occasionally, very, very rarely, I think in the last... Uh, 17 years, I had to send maybe one or two patients for surgery for decurvance tendonitis or even for medial or lateral epicondylitis. Uh, so it's, it's extremely rare. So that's, uh, you know, just to show you, um, so this is the, uh, you know, you can see the tendon. You want to make sure that you're uh, putting proximally. 
as opposed to if you have to inject the CMC of the thumb, you're injecting somewhere around here, but more to the dorsal side. So this is really uh, wrist in this direction, and the CMC can go from here because that's the joint. So lateral epicondylitis, this is extremely common, really, really. I think if, if I have to pick a condition that's um, more common after the, the knee joint and hip joint, I, I see a lot of lateral epicondylitis, you know, the, the, the so-called tennis elbow. You know, it's not just from the tennis, right? Anytime you've got to do an extensor movement, you know, what's a, what's a lateral epicondylitis? It's basically the inflammation of the common tendon of the extensors and uh, the, the most commonly the extensor carpi radius brevis. Um, if you don't take care of them, this, these people may end up having, you know, some degenerative process and may end up having uh, uh, surgery. Um, sport, you know, you always ask the question, you know, you, you, do you play tennis? But more often than not, they don't play tennis. It's their work, you know, they're lifting. You see a lot with the people who are lifting the weights. You see uh, uh, very commonly lateral epicondylitis is seen. So that's the common extensor tendon right there. Um, and then, you know, you have all these extensor muscles. If you push the patient here, you know, that's where the pain is. But it, the other common thing, like I was saying in the elbow, that you see is the olecranon bursitis, which is more on this side as opposed to the la the lateral side here, so you can easily differentiate. And if you have to, uh, you know, think about the medial epicondylitis, it's on this side, which is, you know, relatively easy. But if the patient has any paresthesias, then you've got to think about the ulnar nerve involvement, not just the medial epicondylitis. So the etiology, again, it's uh, either um, overuse from the sports or overuse from the occupation, um, basically, the inflammation of the extensor uh, tendon unit. The trauma occasionally, quite a few, actually, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you, when you ask the history, they tell you they, they injured their elbow, elbow and they developed the lateral epicondylitis and it doesn't go away. Uh, so that's another thing to, to get. Medial epicondylitis is the, the golf elbow, so it's just reverse. Uh, this is all the common tendon of the flexors that's inflamed now. So the pain is on the medial side. And um, so, but it's not as common, you know, when you compare it to the, to the medial epicondylitis. Um, like I said, you know, just to ask the question, when somebody comes in with pain on the medial side of the elbow, do not forget to ask the question about the paresthesia in the medial one and a half fingers. That means there is ulnar nerve involvement could be potentially just from the inflammation secondary to the medial epicondylitis or cubital tunnel syndrome. So the diagnostic test of choice for that would be sending someone for a nerve conduction study uh, to make sure that it's not a cubital tunnel syndrome, uh, and then you can inject those patients. So that's the, the, that's the medial epicondylitis, and you can see these are all the flexor tendons uh, attached to the humerus. Um, this is the medial view of the right elbow. Uh, you know, pretty straightforward. These are not very difficult. And, and you know, like I said, um, um, even an orthopedic surgeon can treat them. So etiology is the overuse of the flexor tendon, repetitive stress at the muscular tendinous junction. Both of them, the same etiology, same pathologic process, just a different movement and different set of the tendons. Uh, purely physical exam. You really don't need anything the only time you need a diagnostic test is if, if the pain on the medial side is associated with the paresthesias, then you need to do the nerve conduction study. Um, so treatment options, same thing, right? NSAIDs, activity modification, uh, bracing occasionally. So if you see a patient who's got ulnar nerve entrapment at the elbow, a mild to moderate cubital tunnel that doesn't need any uh, surgery, it's, it's very interesting. You know, you ask these patients the questions, you know, what, what, what do they do on a daily basis? Um, and if it's left side, they put their elbow on the, um, on the, uh, the door, car door. And if it's the right side, they lean their elbow on their desk when they are working. Uh, I had a patient who was a car mechanic, so the guy is kneeling under the elbow. So a lot of times it is work-related. Uh, you know, 
so you can use these um, over-the-counter braces that are like ten dollars, fifteen dollars uh, in Walgreens or CVS, and you know you're basically protecting their elbow. But if the pain is severe enough, you definitely want to inject. And if you know if you are not comfortable injecting, and if the patient doesn't want to inject, or you don't know where to send the patient, you know wherever you are, something that really worked is the topical inserts. You know you've all heard of. Uh, different uh, topical inserts, whether they are uh, prescription, whether they are compounded, they work really well. And you know, you ask them to rub, and there's there's one that comes with the DMSO, which is actually a little bit better because it can penetrate a couple of inches. That works great. And and you know, same thing. If you are um, using it for a tendonitis that's a little bit deeper, uh, you can use the uh, phonophoresis. You know, where you're using the ultrasound. To guide the the liquid inside the uh, tendon, um, right? So you don't even have to send them to physical therapists. You know there are units that are like ten to twenty dollars that you can actually buy it in the uh, the pharmacies. Uh, if you push them, they they vibrate basically. You know you they have a ball. Um, uh, you know I ask the patients to go buy. I show them a picture. They can go to CVS or wherever they buy. And you, you put the, the cream here and you actually push, push it hard on that. Those work amazing because you are, you know, whether you are uh, using uh, a compounded cream or whether using, you know, prescription strength uh, diclofenac gel, all you're trying to do is drive the, the topicals inside. Uh, if it's severe, then obviously they need. So this is, uh, you know, again showing the technique, you know, relatively easy, finding the spot. And... Uh, I use the 25-gauge needle. Um, so sometimes you may need one and a half uh, inches, but most of the times, uh, five-eighths of an inch is fine. Um, you probably can't see this uh, very clearly. It's, it's in your handouts. This is, um, you know, the, the, this game of billing and coding is a constantly changing uh, world, and each insurance is different, each uh, carrier is different. So don't completely rely on this information. You know, in some areas they have ultrasound bundled, and in some areas they haven't. But you know, if you are putting this into practice, if you want a guide, uh, there are some codes out there. Have you used ultrasound or not? Uh, is it a small joint, medium joint, large joint, trigger points, carpal tunnel, whatever? I, you know, I just put that as as a guide for you guys. But I'm by no means I'm trying to be your uh, billing consultant here, just uh, just something that I use in my office because people ask this question all the time. You know, I put this into the chart. So there are, uh, f uh, I think that's the end of the talk. There are a few references that are not showing up. Maybe it's in your uh, handout. But any questions at this time? So the question was, do we get any pushback um, from the payers for not being an orthopedic surgeon? Uh, no, really, that's not even a requirement. Majority of the injections are done by non-orthopedic surgeons because the surgeons only want to operate. Yeah. Thank you. So um, there are procedures that I routinely use uh, ultrasound, definitely like carpal tunnel, because it's such a small space. And you know, there, there's probably less than 1% of the people who actually have median nerve injury from the injections. But you know, statistics is, is fine as long as you're not the patient, right? If that 1% is you, then it's 100% in your case. Um, but for me, I don't because it's so easy. So I think the judgment is um, how comfortable you are with that particular injection. You know, maybe use it in the beginning until you get comfortable. But um, I have done thousands of carpal tunnels. I would still do it, use it under ultrasound today because that 1% is 1% more than I would like to see because it's a nerve injury. Uh, tendonitis for decurvance, same thing because you could injure the radial nerve you know, people can have wrist drop, and, and injecting into a tendon can be very painful and not, not pretty, so I use it. So it's procedure by procedure. Yeah. Uh, 
So uh, for larger joints, I use 40 milligrams of Depomedrol. And for smaller joints, I use 20 milligrams. Now, uh, there are people who use 80 milligrams. There's absolutely no literature that I can say that 80 milligrams is any better than 40 milligrams that I have come across. But I can tell you with years of experience, I've never had a problem with the 40 milligrams. It's plenty. And you know, there are enough diabetics. And I have seen where, in, in spite of being an intraarticular injection, their blood sugars go up. So I stick to 40 milligrams, especially if you have to do, so there are two things, right? One, when, if it's a diabetic, you're worried about the immediate consequences of the blood sugars going up. But there's very clear evidence that the repeated injections, intraarticular or um, spinal injections of uh, uh, cardico corticosteroids uh, increase the osteopenia and osteoporosis. So for that reason, um, I'm using 40 milligrams majority of the times. Occasionally when the patient comes back, they're not responding to 40 milligrams. You have to, if I have to go back and inject again, then I'm using 80 milligrams. So the question was injection of the amniotic fluid covered by the Medicare. Uh, not that I know of, because it's still considered experimental. In fact, I was um, helping one of the companies in that space uh, putting some documentation together. We had a paper at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons last year uh, looking at a multi-center study about 500 patients uh, who have done extremely well. So I don't think it's covered yet. So uh, I think, you know, different companies are charging different prices, but I would say maybe $300 for one vial, which, which is basically 3cc. That's enough for one big joint, whether it's knee, shoulder, or hip, uh, which is no more expensive than hyaluronic acids. You think about... Uh, uh, you know, three of the hyaluronic acids, any of the brands, are about $800, $900. Uh, I attended a seminar last, uh, maybe 10 days ago. Um, so they were talking about, this was a regenerative medicine seminar. They were talking about these clinics that are purely doing the regenerative medicine. Uh, they are charging somewhere between $800,000 for these injections, uh, both PRP, and the, and the amniotic fluid. So there's, you know, there's, so they're essentially making, I don't know, 50% profit or whatever. So the question is, is amniotic fluid accepted by the FTA? So there's a little bit of a, a, a um, so amniotic fluid is actually considered natural to the body, right? So there is an argument that you really don't need an FDA approval, I guess. and. Uh, I think that issue is not settled yet. They're, they're trying to figure out. Um, but this, this one company that I was helping, they are actually going to go to the FDA for approval. Um, but the approval won't be like a drug approval. It'll be like a device approval or something like that. So the, well, so there's, there's, they are looking at it as two-way. One is... If nature has used amniotic fluid as a protection to the baby for nine months inside, obviously it's doing a great job, right? Billions of people are, are born uh, that we know, and they are protected for nine months inside the womb. So it's a cushion, right? That's what the synovial fluid is. Synovial fluid is a cushion. And the second um, theory that I have not seen any evidence, but that's being talked about is that it actually helps proliferate you know, some of the regeneration. And that's the reason they call it regenerative medicine. But again, you know, that's debated at this point. I've not seen any publications to show that. So that's one of the things I propose to them that, you know, we need to look at uh, the synovial fluid, you know, the content, the, uh, the uh, you know, biomarkers or whatever with the repeat injection. So I think the science is still very preliminary on, on a lot of this stuff. It's called DMSO. It's a compound that existed for a long time. So it's a carrier. So, you know, people have used it in the um, um, 
to transmit the medicine into the body deeper. So there's one diclofenac solution that is available that actually has diclofenac plus DMSO. It's an inside preparation. That's a prescription uh, that's available. I, I like it because it just goes deeper. Yeah, so instrument is really just a vibrator. I, I, I don't know if there's a name for it. It's just um, uh, something that actually is a handheld, little handheld device. And then when you push it actually onto the skin, it, it, it creates the, um, the pressure and gets the, uh, the medicine deeper into the joint or tendon, wherever. You know, most of these areas are superficial enough that you don't need to do a lot to get the medicine inside. And, you know, if, if that's not the case, then you can always send them to a physical therapist to do phonophoresis where they're actually using the real ultrasound and charging $75 to $95 a session, which I feel like, you know, is not needed. First of all, it's inconvenient for the patient to come back each time, and, and the second of all, it becomes expensive. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I see a lot of these are very technique dependent. You know, again, same thing goes along for the synovial fluid. Obviously, we have seen multiple products getting approved under the, the control settings, so they work. Um, so, you know, I, I tell my patients, if, if you're coming here, I'm writing for a prescription for gabapentin or an NSAID, Anybody can do that. It's the same thing, whether I write for a prescription or you write for a prescription. But once you start talking about an interventional procedure, then technique is, is very important. And I, I think, um, uh, you know, the injections actually, when done by um, people who are trained, they are. But the, the problem with the injections is that there are so many people out there who are not well trained doing these procedures, and you get mediocre results. Um, but, I mean, I think the, the lateral epicondylite especially, which I see a lot, uh, responds very, very well. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a very um, research-oriented guy. I've done more clinical trials in the country than anybody else in the pain space, probably. Uh, so I can tell you that I think, you know, I, uh, uh, those work fairly well. In fact, you know, this, some of this PRP stuff, some of the amniotic fluid is also used in the lateral epicondylitis, if it is refractory to the steroids, again, uh, with good results. If you can avoid a surgery, why not? No, I don't inject the iliotibial band because it's where do you inject, right? I mean, the pain is much more widespread as opposed to bursitis, um, uh, which is fairly localized. Um, bursitis responds very, very well. I mean, if, if there's one injection that I would recommend uh, for a, a beginner to start with is the trochanteric bursitis. First of all, you cannot go wrong. There's nothing to go wrong. I mean, there's no neurovascular structures. You don't need any guidance. You put the needle, I'm telling you, your patient's going to respond no matter what. Yeah. Iliotibial band, no. Uh, the other thing you've got to think about with the bursitis sometimes that, that can be occasionally confused with is the meralgia parasitica, which is the, the nerve in the anterior superior iliac spine that gets pinched. Uh, they also have the pain in that area, but they also have parasitia. So you might want to ask your patient, do you have numbness going on the lateral side of the thigh just up to the knee? that has a different problem than the bursitis. They may not respond. So you say if you're well-trained, I mean, regarding our practice, I mean, I've been out of training now for 25 years in general medicine and specialty treatment. But I have an interest in doing some of these small procedures because I live in a rural area. So there were some courses. Um, actually, there was one course that we used to offer here in Vegas. We used to do every two months. We haven't done that in a while. And most of the 
audience was the primary care physicians at the time. We ran into a problem here because we were doing it on cadavers, and Nevada had a, some, some crazy law that, uh, that we couldn't get the cadavers anymore, so we don't do it. Uh, but I am sure there are some, uh, you know, Google it, yeah. I'm sorry? Okay, so AFP has one. And I, SPPM, the Society for Pain Practice Management, has both, you know, the uh, epidurals, that kind of stuff, but they also have office-based procedures like this uh, from time to time, not all the time. Uh, you know, when they get somebody like me to, to do stuff because it's, you know, the anesthesia interventional pain guys are not doing this kind of stuff. They're, they're interested in big needle going into the spine. Yeah, I think it's in the, like, you know, ACP and AF, AFP probably have some. Sure. Thank you. Okay. There is. Um, I'll tell you outside, just because I don't want to be promoting anyone. This is a CME program. Okay, thank you very much.